0: Okay, I think I'm probably just going to sit and be comfortable. Um, my remarks are going to be divided into uh, divided into two uh, two parts. The first part is can be summarised as: don't panic. Fake news is as old as history, and uh, there's nothing new about the present. But the second the second part is that actually. There may be reasons why we ought to be thinking about running for the hills (laughs) and uh, I'll explain explain why in due course. Now obviously my approach because uh, because, uh, I'm an intellectual historian, that means a historian of ideas, I'm going to look at the issue of truth and democracy historically. Uh, Now the reason for doing that is because the way that anybody used to think about politics uh, used to be through what was called by David Hume, Adam Smith, famously, the science of the statesman or legislator. And the, the biggest component probably of the science of the statesman or legislator was a history of ideas explaining how you arrived at where you were in the present. So it's really to say that uh, a lot of people think that uh, history is relevant. I, I think you can really understand where you are usually by having a bit of a history lesson. Obviously that I've got a vested interest in that, mm-hmm. so that's what I'm going to do. Now, the first point is to remember that democracy, if you think about the term democracy and you think about its history, there's a direct relationship between democracy and deceit. Because if we go back to ancient times and the, the direct notions of democracy that were uh, commonplace in the, in the ancient republics, then you will know, because many of you will have, will have studied it, that people were, um, some of the greatest philosophers, Plato above, above all, especially in the sixth book of the Republic, where he attacked democracy as a form of government that was mad and dangerous. The reason it was mad and dangerous is because <coughs> it represents the rule of the mob. The rule of the mob is the rule of the ignorant masses who are seduced by demagogues and rhetoricians who uh, sell moonshine, the gullible people Uh, lap it up and you end up with a disastrous situation either where a corrupt individual runs the ship of state because they have persuaded the masses to to support them or uh, you get a situation where an ordinary individual who has no political skills at all uh, Plato famously gave the the image of a a ship choosing the rather than having a captain of the ship who was skilled you would choose a random member of the crew suddenly to to step onto the bridge and suddenly to pilot this difficult vessel so that was what democracy represented there's another connection that that comes across many many times in the in the history of uh, discussions of democracy and that is the direct relationship between democracy and war again in ancient states the argument went that In order to keep the people happy you need an enemy you have to have another if you don't have an other for the people to focus on they'll focus on you and and the the way that you're ruling potentially badly so have an enemy uh, go to war it brings communities together it brings the people together and they're more likely to vote for you if you or support you directly in the democratic structure if you have an enemy so the argument always went that, there's a, that democratic states are unstable they're unstable because there is a tendency to war now if we jump ahead many many centuries and we think about modern political structures they're based on the principle of representation now we call the principle of representation the basis of what we term representative democracy now everybody knows i'm sure everybody in this room knows already that the principle of representation is an anti-democratic principle. All of the founding fathers of the democratic systems that that we now call democratic, they didn't like democracy at all. In fact, their intention in erecting the principle of representation as the foundation of their system was to prevent the people from being direct political agents in politics. And the reason that you don't want to have the people as direct agents in politics is for all the reasons that, that Plato gave the rule of the ignorant. You're getting away from the Platonic ideal, the rule of the wise. Again, even the rule of the wise, you've got to remember, is based on what Plato called the noble lie, where you tell uh, the members of the Republic that some of them are born mixed with the metal of silver and gold, and they are the guardians, and others have uh, bronze and brass in their in their bodies, and they're suited for being artisans and farmers. That noble lie is the basis of political organization because you have to teach people to be, to be happy with their lot. Now, the principle of representation, it's a, it's a fascinating, um, the history of the principle of re- representation is fascinating because we call it democratic and there's, a, there's a, 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 a reversal of traditional terminology that occurs in the 19th century and I'm not going to bore you with the, with the story now, but anti-democracy becomes democracy. So what we have, an 18th century mind would have looked at our political structures and they would have said, actually, the intention behind our politics is to prevent the people from being direct political agents. Because you don't want that because they're not up to it. Every time, historically, you've had an experiment in democracy, you know, you think of the English Civil Wars, if you could call some of the movements democratic, you end up in war, Disaster, economic collapse, uh, unstable government, and therefore the principle of representation, the intention behind it is to make sure that the people matter in politics. Because obviously, if you ignore the people altogether, the rulers will start to abuse them. But if you give them a greater role than electing representatives who then rule for them, if you do more than that, then again, you're in trouble. You move towards the problems of democracy. So our anti-democratic structures that we call democratic are based on the principle of representation. And again, it's quite interesting the way that especially 18th century minds looked at the principle of representation, because they said when people choose rulers, when they elect uh, their governors, they have a tendency to always elect those that they may know of Or those that they aspire to be like. And that means that we elect the rich and we elect the famous. And that means that in the principle of election you have a tendency to aristocracy and the principle of representation itself is an aristocratic principle. I mean again the the philosophers who looked at this issue are absolutely explicit about it. They knew exactly what you end up with if you've got representation. And they didn't think that having an It's not necessarily an aristocracy passed on generation to generation. It's not based on a hereditary principle, but it's based on you need an elite to govern. Now, if you've got an elite and you've got a system of election, you can say that again, with, say, somebody like Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the social contract who said, it's deceit. It's based on a great big deceit. People believe that they are free under a representative system, but actually they're only free at the moment at which they cast their ballot. At any other time they are not free, and that's why Rousseau uh, ridiculed the, the, uh, the British, he says it's the English, it, it's obviously it's after the, the Union, so it's, it's the British, because he said they think they're free, but actually they're only free once every seven years, and that's when there was an election every seven years in the 18th century, so it's only at that point that people are really free. For the rest of the time, they're slaves. They're slaves to their political masters. Now, if you accept that the principle of representation is the basis of our, of our notion of democracy, no matter what its lineage, then again, it's very interesting in terms of what people were worried about once you have created this principle of representation. And in order to understand what we've ended up with, It's worth going back to David Hume, obviously we're in his tower, Uh, he's relevant. And David Hume famously said in an essay of commerce that the world changed and politics changed completely when, as he put it, commerce became a reason of state. In other words, states begin to compete with each other economically for one another's markets. And as soon as they do that, Hume thought, politics are transformed. One of the things you lose are the virtue-based politics, the morality-based politics associated with the old republics, where you might want a virtuous, um, masculine citizenry to fight for the state. And the argument was, you don't use mercenaries, you use citizens who are dedicated to the public good. They're willing to die for their state. The ideal of the Roman republican farmer who also makes the laws and fights the wars that is the that's the ideal image for Hume that's lost it's history once you've got the development of commercial societies competing with one another and what Hume was really worried about was that politics and commerce become tied together and once you've got that different problems emerge now As again, you will all know, Hume was a sceptic. And one of the things that he worried about more than anything else was the legacy of the Reformation. Because he thought that European societies everywhere had become divided and they kindled the fire of Reformation and they burned one another to to seek to save each other's souls and there was war and there was uh, massacre and it was dreadful. And one of the great things about the century Hume lived in, in the 18th century, is the fires have been put out. But what Hume thought and what Adam Smith thought was that the fires of Reformation actually haven't been put out. They've been translated from religion into politics. And that's actually what you really want to worry about because once you have a commercial society, you have people selling everything and people begin to sell uh, what are called projects and if they are of a religious bent, they're likely to be enthusiasts, and the worst thing that you could possibly have in politics, especially a politics based on the principle of representation, is an enthusiast who is also a projector. And an enthusiast and a projector, these are obviously 18th century terms that I still, I think, translate into, into well, should be revived, actually, because, um, because an enthusiast and a projector... They're people who tell you and tell the people and tell the people to vote for them that it's very, very easy to change things. All you need is a, there's a universal panacea. Um, uh, it's very easy to, to drain the swamp or build a wall or, or proclaim independence or, uh, or, or leave a club. All of these projects are associated with a certain form of enthusiasm. Now, and Hume and Smith called them religious. I mean, they're absolutely... Ex- they're, they're careful about it because it's very difficult to be uh, a religious sceptic still in the 18th century, but they argued that religion had been translated into politics, and that's what meant... That's, that made Western commercial society, uh, European commercial society, so dangerous because the politics that emerge from it are politics where enthusiasm and projection are everywhere. Now... The forms of enthusiasm and projection that they worried most about, and I think Adam Smith is actually clearer than David Hume on, on this point. Again, if we look at book four of The Wealth of Nations, people think Adam Smith, think about the Adam Smith Institute, and Adam Smith as an advocate of free markets and things like that. Read his work is, uh, is all I can say. Smith hated or, and was very afraid of two groups in society. The first is... Um, the insidious, crafty animal, the politician. And Smith thought that politicians who sell themselves to merchants, and he called merchants uh, monopolizers who are mean and rapacious, and he thought the worst situation was where you allow business and politics to mix together. And once you do that, you've got a disaster because you pray, it means that the businessman will sell, will a, buy the politician and will sell the politician enthusiasm and a project that can then be sold on to the, to the people and you result in dread in the collapse of all values and, um, and you lose a sense of the common good and that is an absolute disaster That's why, again, Hume and Smith are so worried about the future of commercial society. I mean, Hume thought that the international relations that develop through uh, societies fighting one another for their markets, either you get the kind of actions like the, the British in Bengal simply shutting down the industry, the British in Ireland preventing them from uh, exporting cattle, from having a a woolen industry. Uh, They were only allowed to have very, very basic manufactures of of goods like uh, linen products. So that's reason of state, that's realpolitik, applied to the economic realm, and the argument was that it's a disaster and it's a form of enthusiasm. But Smith also said that, and the international politics that are associated with it, Hume said, was he called it cudgel playing in a china shop because you have states competing with each other for one another's markets and the international relations become warlike and bloody because um, people will go to war to to, uh, secure um, natural resources for their industries to shut down other people's industries to extend their own markets and so you have a direct connection between politics based on representation and war. So that old argument about the connection between democracy and war resurfaces. Now, I'm going to finish in a couple of minutes just by concluding that Hume and Smith, they weren't optimistic about the future. In fact, they thought that uh, enthusiasm was so rife and and religion was coming back because of the the connection between uh, commerce and politics and the merchants beginning to dominate politicians, they were so worried that they thought (coughs) that the future was likely to be bleak. And obviously they both uh, die before the, uh, the French Revolution. But the French Revolution confirms every prejudice of the 18th century mind with regard to uh, dem- democracy and representation, because obviously what you get is everybody says let 's create an ideal community we 'll all get on extremely well, and then and we're all cosmopolitans, we love everybody, we, we uh, legislate that we are never going to enter into a war except a defensive war, and then they uh, create a, a Republican empire across Europe, uh, create a, a, a massacre there's internal massacres, there 's domestic. Uh, there's civil war, there's international war, and nothing gets sorted out <coughs> until uh, 1815 where you have the tragedy, and it is a tragedy for the world, that the only uh, legitimate political model becomes the British constitution. And having the British as a model is always profoundly uh, depressing for anybody, and uh, in some ways we've never recovered from uh, from what happened in 1815. But Smith and Hume where they were positive about the future was that they thought that you have the signs of the states and the legislator and what the signs of the states and the legislator teaches it teaches what you should be afraid of and you should be really afraid of a close connection between business and politics you should be really afraid of excessive wealth for Smith and for Hume if you've got got moderate wealth everywhere that's what you need if you get excess either dearth or um, or uh, uh, excessive wealth then you're going to have corruption but the science of the statesman or legislator the aspiration was to teach the professions their duties And in universities, the idea was the science of the states and the legislature, which was the basis of the moral philosophy curriculum in this university, uh, famously especially, it taught people their duties. You went in from different professions, you came out knowing your duties, and you had a really clear idea of the public good, of the res publica, of what was good for everybody, and you were dedicated to that. And I think the reason why, and it's really echoing what's been said before, the reason why we ought to be so sceptical Uh, today is because our politicians don't seem to give a damn about a notion of a public good and the public good is something that's defined long term it's never it's never short term it's never narrow self-interest the fact that politicians and civil servants can move from uh their their roles in government straight into lobby firms or giving speeches uh paid hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, straight onto the boards of companies that, where they were responsible for regulating these companies, only months before, I think that uh, were Smith and Hume alive today, they would be screaming that the science of the legislator, which used to teach the duties and the notion of a, co- of a common good, has been lost. Thank you very much.